Chapter 14, False Apostles. Yeshua, the Hebrew Messiah, warned his disciples in many places of coming false prophets. These false prophets would include apostles, considering apostle means sent forth to proclaim, announce, and or teach. In fact, he warned his disciples in Matthew 24, 24 and Mark 13 that false anointed ones, that is Christ, and false prophets that could deceive, if possible, even the elect would come. The elect, of course, were his disciples. That was a powerful warning, but did it happen? We must keep in mind Yeshua gave his disciples that warning to their faces personally. <clears throat> That's Matthew 24, 3. So if Yeshua's disciples never encountered those prophesied false anointed ones, i.e. apostles or prophets, how could that not have rendered Yeshua a false prophet himself? Again, if he was speaking over his disciples' heads to some generation thousands of years in the future, that would certainly have made him a first-class deceiver, i.e. false messiah. Again, as previously pointed out, his apostles also taught he was returning in their generation, that is, the first century, which would make them deceived and false prophets as well if Yeshua didn't return in their generation. Obviously, we can't accept that Yeshua lied or deceived his disciples. So where were those false prophets and false anointed ones, i.e. Christ, he told his disciples were coming? Let's not forget Yeshua's admonition that these false ones would be so deceptive they could possibly deceive even the elect, that is, his disciples. That's a tough one, but we must keep in mind, deceivers tell much truth while slipping in a few little lies into their teachings like poison. So unless a person is paying careful attention, they are easily deceived. <clears throat> Sometimes the greatest deceptions are the ones right in front of our faces, which ironically makes them the most difficult to see like our noses. There's one thing we can always count on to show the truth, the fruit on the tree. Of course, fruit is a reference to a person's actions. But again, to have the truth of a cherished icon exposed is extremely difficult. But as painful as it feels at first, it does set us free. Remember Arthur Schopenhauer's three stages of accepting hard truth. In this dissertation of false apostles, it's imperative to keep in mind the way the translators and compilers of the canon manipulated it to one degree or another by adding and subtracting books at will. A good example of this is the Apocrypha books in the first King James translation of 1611, as well as the Catholic Bible. Uh, Martin Luther was the first to remove them in his German translation, which was followed by the American Bible Society in the 18th century. With that in mind, we begin examining the fruit on the 13th tree, i.e. apostle, with Revelation 21's huge clue in verse 14, where there are only 12 apostles, not 13 or more. But that should come as no surprise when we dig a little and discover it was the Catholic bishop Athanasius in the 4th century CE who authorized Paul and his writings as canonical. In fact, he did it in a letter to his parishioners in Alexandria, Egypt, instructing them on the proper keeping of Easter, which is a very pagan rite, the worship of the goddess of fertility, Ishtar. We have more scriptural proof. False pop apostles appear, just as Yeshua predicted in Revelation 2.2. In a letter to the congregation in Ephesus, they were praised for testing those who said they were apostles and were not. Let's read it. I know your works, 
your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. How interesting to find the Apostle Paul lamenting in 2 Timothy 4.16 how no one stood with him and all forsook him, apparently forcing him to leave in a hurry on his trip to Ephesus. In fact, he had to send Tychus back to get his cloak, books, and parchments he apparently was forced to leave behind in his quick getaway. Obviously, he was one of those the Ephesians found to be a false apostle and liar. The remainder of this chapter will clearly show just who and what Paul or Saul was. But one thing's for sure, he is not who Christianity has been led to believe. Ironically, it is his own words and actions that hang him. That said, we must keep in mind our introduction to Saul or Paul in his participation in the stoning of Stephen and persecution of the saints. As hard as it is to accept, can a leopard really change its spots? In the case of Paul, the leopard changing its spots is exactly what we've been taught. But his actions or fruit prove that leopard didn't change its spots at all. In fact, one of the teachings of the Messiah and his twelve is repentance. But nowhere do we find any hint of Paul's actual personal repentance. All that is mentioned is regret, which is not the same thing. Let's take a look at some of the heinous actions of this unrepentant apostle in Acts 8, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the called out ones, that's the ecclesia, entering every house and dragging men and women and committing them to prison. And this passage doesn't even mention those murdered, like Stephen. Again, did this unrepentant leopard really change his spots? There's a common strategy in war used all through history. If an enemy is too strong for a frontal assault, a better strategy is to pretend to become one of them and destroy them from the inside. That's called infiltration or fifth column. That in mind, can we honestly believe Saul's demon puppet masters using him to arrest and murder the saints like Stephen were not aware of this crafty strategy? Seriously? No doubt the demons are the authors of that extremely effective covert strategy in the first place. In fact, our leaders are currently employing that method to bring down the modern nations of Israel and the U.S., that is Ephraim. Looking a little further, we notice Yeshua personally chose his disciples. Keeping that in mind, and that Hebrews 13.8 states, He, or Yahweh, does not change. Did he really make that huge change and choose Saul by blinding him on the road to Damascus? How interesting this so-called apostolic commission including, included binding, blinding. Hmm, now there's a clue. Who is the one who blinds or deceives? Is it not the dragon that deceives the whole world? That said, did Yeshua also ignore his twelve personally anointed apostles and spend years privately teaching Saul in the wilderness? Oh, and with no witnesses? That said, how interesting, Paul is called an apostle 22 times. 20 times by his own tongue. And the other two, only other two times, were, by, were not by any of the other 12 anointed apostles, but Paul's scribe. Excuse me? There are obvious red flags everywhere. But in examining Saul's personal actions and teachings, we find many more. One of those huge red flags is the fact Saul nowhere teaches the things Yeshua taught, as in Matthew 5 and 6. 
Again, what is wrong with this picture? Did Yeshua really send Saul or Paul to teach different things than his twelve? Remember Hebrews 13.8 where we're told Yeshua does not change. Well, the common justification was the Lord, that is not Yeshua, supposedly sent him to the Gentiles, which also doesn't wash considering he spent much of his time in the synagogues talking to the Jews. In fact, it was the Jews that tried to kill him for teaching heresies to them in Acts 21 through 23. Many argue Paul did go to the Gentiles considering his congregations in Rome and Corinth. But let's not forget, the Pharisees like Paul would not even walk on the same side of the street as Gentiles and proclaimed himself to be a he proclaimed himself to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And as we'll see, the lost tribes, that is the diaspora, were also considered Gentiles by the Jews. The belief he was sent to preach to the Gentiles also makes no sense considering Paul's getting in the apostle Peter's face for supposedly eating with Gentiles, which was strictly forbidden by the Pharisees. Of course, Paul was a Pharisee and would have been doing the same thing he was accusing Peter if he had Gentile congregations. On the other hand, we have multiple scriptures in Acts where Paul went to synagogues on a Sabbath to teach the Jews, not Gentiles. By the way, we know Paul was among those of the circumcision, that is the Jews, that got in Peter's face to publicly correct him for eating with Gentiles by Paul's bragging about it to the Galatians. That's in Galatians 2, 11-14. But if we read the entire account in Acts 11, we see Peter was absolved of any wrongdoing in verse 4, where it says, When they heard these things, that is Peter's explanation, they became silent and glorified God, that is Yahweh, saying, Then Yahweh has granted the Gentiles, that is the lost tribes of Israel, repentance to life. Again, in reading the whole account of the vision of the sheet full of unclean animals, Peter was completely justified. But Paul, on the other hand, certainly was not. Not only was Paul a complete hypocrite in condemning or correcting the apostle Peter in public, there's another glaring problem. We must not forget that Saul was a young man, at least 20 to 30 years younger than Peter. Plus, Peter was one of the chief apostles of Yeshua's twelve. Paul showed zero respect and did what no righteous person would ever have done, publicly correcting Peter, his elder, both physically and spiritually. What a hypocrite that makes Paul. Besides, those Peter was eating with were not actual Gentiles. We have scriptures of Yeshua instructing his disciples, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, but rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those Peter was eating with were those of the lost tribes of Israel, to whom, whom Yeshua sent his disciples or apostles. We see those specific instructions to go only to the lost house of Israel, reinforced in Matthew 7, 6 and Matthew 15, 22. And there it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, that is Tyre and Sidon, and crying out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. She goes on to say, My daughter is severely demon-possessed, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that is not the Jews, that's Israel. If Yeshua does not change as is stated in Hebrews 9, how could he have sent Paul to actual Gentiles, that is, non-Israelites? The truth is, he wouldn't and couldn't without being a liar and a deceiver. 
Paul tipped his hand by showing major disrespect to the apostle Peter, his elder, and playing the hypocrite in supposedly associating with Gentiles, but does far worse with his own admonition to the Romans that he was converting them with his lies. Is using lies to convert really an acceptable way to act and teach? Let's not forget, Revelation 21.8 tells us all liars will have their place in the lake that burns with fire. Speaking of lies and deceit, we find Paul also attempting to deflect suspicion off himself being a false apostle in 2 Corinthians 11.13. Remember what the letter to Ephesus, Ephesians said, that those that they were able to detect those that said they were apostles and were not? And Paul himself said he was an apostle 20 times? Well, here in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And for no wonder, for Satan, that means adversary, transforms itself into an angel of light. Here we have Paul doing the exact things that the Ephesians caught him doing. And he's pretending to be against the false apostles to deflect the light off of himself being one. <clears throat> Anyway, oh, the immeasurable gall of this man, considering who he really was, that is a false apostle. Isn't this where the old adage, it takes one to no one, comes to mind? Actually, this type of self-guilt deflection was, and still is, very common practice. We see it especially pronounced in modern politics, where each side accuses the other of doing and being the very thing they are. In fact, a book called Rules for Radicals, a handbook for internal overthrow of a nation by Saul Alinsky, advises the radicals always accuse their opponents of being and doing exactly what they themselves are and are doing. Considering the name of the author of the Rules for Radicals is Saul, it seems that Saul's demon puppet masters is still very much alive and well. In fact, one way to know who or what someone is is to listen to what they accuse others of doing and or being. It's correctly said, words are cheap, but actions are truth. And it's written, by their fruits you shall know them. That's in Matthew 7.20. Fruit is a reference to actions, both good and bad. That said, how ironic, the word politics is a compound word when divided into its two parts, poly, meaning many, and ticks, blood-sucking insects, speaks volumes as to the truth of politicians. How true. Getting back to Saul, or Paul, and his deceptive antics, we find him drastically misquoting scripture, more lying. For instance, he states in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. First of all, we find the Bible full of righteous people, with Hebrews listing dozens of them in chapter 11, beginning with righteous Abel. Actually, Paul was telling the truth about it is written, but the problem was his radical misquote of a passage in Psalm 14. There it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is none who does good or is righteous. No, not one. Wow, talk about turning a scripture upside down. <clears throat> Considering Paul's lying, how interesting the way he laments to the Romans in chapter 7, that's in verses 14 through 24, how he does the things he does not want to do, that is sin, and doesn't do the righteous things he knows he should or wants to do. So how hypocritical when he reprimands his congregation in Corinth in chapter 5 and 11 of 1 Corinthians for their unrighteous behavior 
correcting them for despicable behavior for which he himself admits to being guilty. The glaring white elephant in the room here is, if Paul and his congregations were filled with Yahweh's spirit of righteousness and power, would not he have had the power <clears throat> over his own behavior? Is it any wonder he had to invent a philosophy of being saved, that is, from death and hell, by this so-called grace, rather than righteous behavior? You'll notice that none of Yeshua's twelve apostles talked that way. In fact, their teachings were just the opposite, all about behavior. In fact, see the book of James. Ironically, Paul also laments in Romans 7, beginning with verse 18, For in me nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Again, how could he say, in me dwells nothing good, if he were filled with Yahweh's spirit of righteousness and life? Obviously he couldn't, well, because he wasn't. He continues to lament in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember, Yeshua's, or Yahweh's spirit is the spirit of life, not death. Again, if Paul knew Yeshua's teachings and was filled with Yahweh's spirit of life, he would never have postulated such a ridiculous rhetorical question. In fact, that's the very reason modern Christianity loves Paul so much. They also, being void of Yahweh's spirit of righteousness and life, are in the same sinking boat of unrighteous behavior and death as their favorite apostle, Paul. I cannot wrap up this chapter or study without reminding how the compilers, many of them pagan, of the Bible canons were notorious for including and removing books from the Bible canon. That is a big part of the problem with Paul, as we'll see as we continue down Paul's rabbit hole of illusion. As noted earlier, a good example of including and removing books of Scripture is the Apocrypha books included in the LXX, or the Septuagint in 270 BCE. Most of those were included in the first King James translation, that is the 1611, but were, let, were removed from later editions. To say Yahweh inspired them to be placed in the canon and then had them removed means he made a mistake having them included in the first place, right? Well, that said, are we really going to stand on the foundation the inclusion of Paul's writings was also of Yahweh and not of his adversaries? If, uh, if so, again, I have some wonderful oceanfront property in Arizona to sell. Cheap. If you're not yet convinced Paul's writings were not inspired by Yahweh or Yeshua and should not have been included in the Bible canon, we have so much more proof. Again, our current New Testament canon was authorized by a pagan Catholic bishop named Athanasius in the 4th century CE. That said, remember how 1 John 4 verse 1 admonishes the congregations to test the spirits. It says there, Beloved, do not believe every word, but test the spirits, whether they are of Yahweh, because many false prophets, which would include apostles, have gone out into the world. That said, doesn't wisdom dictate we follow that advice and test the spirit of Saul, or Paul, the supposed 13th apostle? Or should we just do as the churches have done, just blindly accept Paul as legitimate? After all, <clears throat> as we have already seen, Paul had the spirit of hypocrisy when he condemned or corrected Peter for eating with Gentiles, or that is, the lost Israelites, while later bragging about to the Galatians, even though Peter's actions were exonerated. 
Secondly, we see the spirit of disrespect in the way Paul got into the elder apostle Peter, Peter's face to correct him in the first place. Paul had absolutely no right or authority to do that. Thirdly, we see the, lying, the spirit of lying and deception with Paul's own admission he was lying to his followers in Rome to convert them. His misquoting of scripture was certainly the spirit of the liar. <clears throat> if that isn't enough, there's even more. It is said birds of feather flock together. In fact, one of our recent presidents quipped, this is paraphrase, you know people by the people they surround themselves with and me by the people I surround myself with. How right he was. The people he surrounded himself with were as corrupt and lying as he proved to be. Well, when we look at Paul, we find that the ones he surrounded himself with were of his same spirit as well. It's quite interesting how a certain spirit automatically attracts a similar spirit, one with which it is comfortable. That in mind, how interesting Paul did not hang around the other 12 apostles. How interesting that is. With that thought, in the post-apostolic era, that is 70 to 375 CE, there were many groups vying for dominance, which each with different collections of writings for their teachings. A few of those groups were the Ebionites, followed by the Marcionites, and finally ending with the Proto-Orthodox, the group that founded the Universal or the Catholic Church. It was the Proto-Orthodox that ended up on top. In fact, it was from them the term Orthodox originated. But I'm not going to go into the differences of all the different groups and, and their beliefs that Dr. Ehrman in his lectures explains, but only the one that involves Paul, that is the Marcionites. In the latter part of the first century, a man named Marcion was born to an Orthodox bishop, the bishop of the congregation in Sinope, a town in Asia Minor. Marcion managed to become somewhat wealthy and decided to turn his attention to religion. And not wanting to work his way up the ladder, he attempted to buy a position with his father's church with a large donation. Unfortunately, his attempt to bribe the church elders was rejected. It wasn't just his attempt to buy a position that caused his rejection, but his beliefs were not acceptable either. Being rejected as a heretic, Marcion decided to, to found his own religion. Unfortunately, he hated the Old Testament, that is, the Jewish God and his Torah, believing he was a harsh and cruel God, which he re rejected completely. Not only did Marcion hate and reject Yahweh, but Yeshua and his twelve apostles as well. There was only one spirit he connected with. Marcion was only interested in a new Greek god and messiah called Isis, or Jesus, and his apostle, the 13th. He even rejected the Gospels except for Luke, believing Luke was Paul's personal scribe. The only writer in the first century Marcion accepted was Paul. When he assembled the first New Testament canon, he was the first and original New Testament. Marcion's collections of writings for his New Testament completely rejected the old It's God and Torah or Law, as well as the true Hebrew Messiah and his disciples or the other twelve apostles. That said, Marcion's embracement of Paul is one of the greatest proofs of who and what Paul really was. Again, birds of feather flock together. Regardless of what one wishes to believe about Paul, Marcion's heretical beliefs and love for Paul say it all. How interesting also, and a fact I've never heard addressed, is how the twelve apostles of Yeshua virtually fade from the scene in Acts 
that is, of the apostles, with the arrival of the 13th out of 12 apostle, Paul. No doubt Marcion had great influence upon Bishop Athanasius when he recommended our current 29 New Testament books in the 4th century CE, that is to be the authorized writings for the teaching of the Universal Church. Of course, these were also adopted by the daughters of the Universal Church, the Protestants. I'd like to end this chapter with just a couple more quotes from Paul. First, in 2 Corinthians 12:16, he writes, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty, Wow, crafty, I caught you in my guile. Wow, what an admission. But then remember what Yeshua told his disciples, that is quoted earlier, that false teachers or prophets would arrive that would be so crafty as to possibly deceive even the elect. Well, it seems all of Christianity has been deceived by the guile of this man. Paul also admits in Romans 7, 14, he was carnal and sold under sin. How more plainly he, could he confess to be bought and paid for by the dark side? Again, there in Romans 7, he freely admits, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Again, what a mouthful. But that's the truth out of his own mouth. What he clearly admitted there was he was simply the dragon's puppet. No wonder he had to contrive something in lieu of obedience like grace. Unlike the twelve apostles of Yeshua, he was not given the power of Yahweh's Spirit to control his own behavior. That promise is found in Acts 1 through 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power when Yahweh's Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. One thing is obvious here, Paul was not among those twelve being addressed or the 120 in Acts 2. Obviously, it was this power that gave the twelve and the rest of the 120 the ability to be righteous, that is, control their behavior, and to not have to lament like Paul about not being able to do the things he wanted, that is, the right things, while doing the unrighteous things he didn't want to do. Anyway, next we will look into the most shocking events to unfold in thousands of years. Investigate the countdown into a whole new age and world. The most amazing part of this is it is being shown by supernatural signs, both in the heavens and on earth. What is even more shocking is how these supernatural events and heavenly signs mesh, mesh perfectly with the biblical outline, that is, of the feasts and also prophecies. It begins with the miraculous announcement of the fall harvest season, that is, of humans, and culminates with the establishment of a whole new era of human existence and future. Fifty years ago, we, as a whole, thought we were already there with our marvelous technological age of wonder. But as the decades have unfolded, we are witnessing a spiral into chaos. We are not taught babies, that is, in the womb, and even after birth are expendable. Just as shocking is that traditional marriage is now passé and sodomite marriage is now a blessed thing. Plus, the Bible is now hate speech and needs to be banned. This is just a sampling of our current garden of evil. But the good news is, this evil realm is about to crash and burn. And what is just around the corner for humanity is beyond breathtaking. We are talking about the literal new garden of Eden. Here again in real time. But first, let's get to that countdown. That is to it.